Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to concentrate on your word, uh, to put aside distractions, uh, and uh, to really see uh, as the blind man saw. And we pray for all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, how many of you uh, need to wear glasses or contact lenses? Uh, put your hands. So I think almost all of us uh, here need to wear glasses or contact lenses. And I think we all know the difficulty it is to be able to function without our glasses or contact lenses. Uh, a few days, uh, a, few, a few weeks ago actually, I absentmindedly rubbed my eye when I had my contact lenses on and I tore the contact lens. And I remember the whole day, the rest of the day, I was just stumbling around uh, and it was a nightmare. I couldn't see out of one eye, I could see out of the other eye and everything was really blur. And it wasn't until I got home, till I got rid of the other contact lens and put on my glasses, that I felt that actually life came back to normal again. But what is even worse than being unable to see is to be blind to our own blindness. When our own blindness is not readily apparent to us, when we don't realize it. So I remember I first started wearing glasses when I was in my last year of university. But I think that it took me a few months before I finally got down to getting a pair of glasses. I remember it started because I was sitting at the back of the university lecture hall and I never sat at the front. I was one of those students who always sat at the back. And I was having trouble seeing what the lecturer was writing on the notice board. I remember sitting and waiting for buses and I couldn't see the bus number and I probably missed half of what I was watching in the cinema as well. But for months after months, I was thinking, well, you know, my eyesight is fine. I've never worn glasses. You know, I'm, never, I'm not going to be one of those nerds who wears glasses. Right? It's probably a bit dark in the lecture theatre or maybe the... The lecturer's writing is a bit small. And I kept putting it off month after month until finally I went to get a pair of glasses and I realized that actually I was fairly blind. Now today is the theme in the book of John of the theme of blindness. And it asks a really important question. Can you really see or are you blind? Or if you think you are seeing, are you really seeing indeed? It begins uh, by starting with the story of Jesus just going along in verse 1, and seeing a blind man, and he is blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is a, a, a fairly common understanding uh, among the ancient world, and I think it's, it's something that even today, many people have this wrong understanding, that there is a very tight and close connection between sin and punishment. Okay, so the disciples held this very tight connection that maybe this guy sinned in the womb and therefore he was born blind. God punished him immediately and very severely. Or maybe the parents, they sinned somehow in their marriage or in their life and therefore he was born blind. Again, a very tight connection. But in the Bible, actually, it doesn't have that tight connection. Uh, there have been times where God does punish people individually and very, very quickly. But there are other times where God punishes the person as an individual, as a community, much, much, much later in their life. And there are times where we see that some people receive no punishment in life at all, but God promises that they will be judged at the last days. At the same time, we read in the Bible that there are many innocent people who suffer very greatly, a huge range of suffering. So the Apostle Paul was sick for much of his ministry. He had a thorn in his flesh. His co-worker, Epaphroditus, was so sick that he nearly died. 
But these people did not sin. They were faithful and righteous Christians, but they still suffered. So this tight connection between suffering and sin was clearly not there in the Bible. But this was the way that the, the disciples of Jesus were thinking. So I think it's very wrong for us to say, okay, someone has cancer, and if you have cancer, it's because you sinned. Right? I think that's a very, very unloving and unbiblical and untrue thing to say. There is no connection like that in the Bible. But Jesus says in verse 3 that in this man's life, there was a connection. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now I want to say to you that verse 3, 4 and 5 are the key to understanding the whole of chapter 9. If you, if you, if you spend some time just trying to understand what Jesus says, then you understand what actually happens after this. So we're going to pay a bit of time, uh, pay a bit of attention to exactly what Jesus is saying to explain why this man is born blind. And he says the reason why this man is born blind is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now I guess that if we read it quickly, we read it very superficially, we might think that the work of God is to heal. The work of God to be displayed is the healing of the man that he sees, the blind man sees. But I don't think it's so open and shut. I don't think the works of God here which are on display is just the simple healing of the man. Because if you look very carefully in this passage, it says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of Him who sent me. So obviously, I don't think the disciples were meant to be going around healing people of their blindness day after day. They're not optometrists or you know, eye surgeons or something. Uh, they were there for a different reason. So I think we need to really get into the text to understand what, were, what was the purpose of the healing? What was the works of God which was displayed through the healing? Now, Jesus begins with a very simple analogy, which I think uh, the ancients would have been very familiar with. And he says that when it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming where no one can work. And that's very simple, right? Now, in the ancient world, uh, the day was divided into two parts. 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of night. You know, it's very simple for them. And during the 12 hours of daylight, people worked you know, they did their farming, they did their tending of the gardens of the sh and looked after the sheep. But at night time, they slept. Okay, so you can have a look at this slide, right? So it's night time and day, and next slide. So during the day, people worked, and at night, people slept. But Jesus here takes this very, very simple picture and applies it to their ministry. When he says, it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Now, exactly what are these works? The works are not farming, okay? The works are not farming, but rather the works that the disciples had to do was not healing, but was to actually do the work which points to Jesus. So he says further on in verse 5, right? You have to keep interacting with the passage and just look at what it says here. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, so on one sense, next slide, 
Jesus is that light. He is the daytime, right? He is the demarcation between the day and the night. While Jesus is with them, they have light. It is daytime and that must work. But when he is not with them, it will be dark and he, they are unable to work. All right? Now, you understand where I'm coming from? You understand what the passage is saying so far? So then what he goes on to say next is, the work that the disciples must do is not to heal, it's not to do gardening or farming or shepherding, but it is to, to point to Jesus as the light of the world. That is the works that they are to do, right? So the next slide. So there's the work that the disciples are meant to do. They, they point to the light, to Jesus. And that is why the healing miracle in verse 3 is a display of the work of God which is being done in Jesus, that He is the light of the world. So in the same way, in the next slide, the healing of the blind man right, is a display. It points to Jesus as the light of the world. Okay, you, you understand what's happening here? If you look at verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, the work of God is not the healing the work of God is to bring people to Jesus as the light of the world. Now this makes a lot of sense because when we look back at chapter 8, what was Jesus doing? Do you remember chapter 8? In the previous chapter, in verse 12, Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the whole of chapter 8, Jesus was trying to exhort and appeal to the people to come out of the darkness into the light. That was his work. That was what he was doing, to call people to the light. And that's what's happening here in chapter 9, that the same work is still being done, that people are being called to come into the light, that Jesus is the light. Now, as Jesus calls the people and they see the blind man being healed, something strange happens, right? Something unexpected so you look here in verse 6. After saying this, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then will your eyes open, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus put some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Now, isn't this remarkable? I, uh, I, I, um, I like what someone said in the Bible study state, right? You know, if someone put spat in the mud and put it on my eye, I would probably go blind, right? Because, you know, get conjunctivitis or something, right? But the opposite happens, right? Jesus takes mud, he spits on it, right? Not very sanitary and hygienic. and puts it on his eye and the man sees. And his neighbors see this healing because the man comes home and they say, hey, look, isn't this the guy that used to beg outside the MRT station every day? How come he can see? What happened to him? Well, for some people, the healing 
was too great, right? It's too remarkable. They said, look, it only looks like this man. It must be his, uh, his, his twin. Right? Is, it, it, look, is it possible that this guy can see when he is born blind? And in some ways, I think that even at this point, we can see the difficulty that people have with the display of God's work in Jesus' life. It was easier for them to, ex- to, to believe that this man actually had a twin who could see than to believe that this man had been healed, even though Jesus had done it. They couldn't accept that Jesus was the light of the world. And I wonder whether that's the same for many people today. I, I hope that it's not the truth for any of us here today. But actually, when I've been preparing for the book of John, the commentaries, some people just refuse to believe that God can do the supernatural. Right? There, are, there are people who do not believe in God and they refuse to believe that there is a supernatural testimony to God. So we've been going through, we're up to John chapter 9 now, and every one of the miracles that we read here, people will give a naturalistic explanation. Oh, Jesus didn't really walk on water, you know. What happened was, there was a, uh, there was a shallow bank, you know, on the edge of the, of, the, of the river, and Jesus was walking along that bank. Or, you know, Jesus didn't really turn water into wine. He, you know, the host was just being polite and saying that, you know, he had saved the best to last. Uh, Jesus didn't really feed 5,000 men or 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. You know, it was just that by his example, people started being generous and they started opening up and giving away their own food. Uh, Jesus didn't really heal. You know, these were really ancient people and they were just superstitious and it was all, a, it was all in their mind. It was all a psychosomatic thing. See, like the neighbors of the blind man, it was easier to accept these explanations than to accept that a, a great and powerful miracle had happened. And that through this great and powerful miracle, it was saying something about Jesus and the works that Jesus was doing on behalf of God. I know that uh, when uh, there was a movie come, come up recently, I'm not sure how many of you have watched it about uh, Moses of gods and men or something, right? I didn't watch it myself, but I remember reading the review from a Christian uh, website and they were saying that actually in every one of, for those of you who have seen the movie, if you haven't seen it, I'll just spoil it for you anyway. But in every one of the, mov- every one of the miracles of Moses, in the movie, the explanation is something natural happened, right? Something natural happened. It couldn't be God. It couldn't be supernatural. It must just have been something natural that happened, which was a coincidence. And this was the same thing. The neighbors, some of them, refused to accept the supernatural work of God and to accept the testimony that they made about Jesus. So if you look at the next slide, uh, one way to reject that Jesus was really God and the power of God working through him is is to ignore the miracle. Don't see the miracle. Don't believe that Jesus did this. Well, in verse 13, the undecided on the crowd brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, the crowd uh, brought the man to the Pharisees. Uh, I think 
in a uh, very uh, neutral way. I don't think they were trying to cause trouble for Jesus or the man. But in the ancient world, what happened was whenever there was a great miracle or something, they couldn't quite work out what was happening. They would bring this person to the Pharisees and they would decide like, a, you know, like some sort of judicial system. What had happened? Is this from God or not from God? Is this man really healed or is he a charlatan? So innocently, I believe, the crowd brought this man to the Pharisees and said, look, what is your official pronouncement? What is your position on what has happened? Did this happen? Is it true? Is it a work of God? How should we see this? Well, the Pharisees seem to begin. Quite innocently, they ask him, look, how, how did you actually receive your sight? And the man says, Jesus put mud on my eyes, then I went to wash, and now I see. Well, immediately, they make a verdict. Right? They don't need to ask any more questions. Because in their mind, Jesus was a sinner because he broke the Sabbath. Now, according to the law, if you read very closely up here, God had said in the Ten Commandments that they must remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy, he said. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor any animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The important question to ask is, what exactly is work? Because God says you're not meant to work on the Sabbath, but instead you're meant to rest. Rest, not work. The other six days you work, not rest. For the Pharisees, they had a very, very strict interpretation of work. Very strict interpretation, and, and it became stricter over time as the tradition expanded the body of laws which would apply to the Sabbath. So Jesus, it seemed, uh, at least anyway, had broken the Sabbath in, in probably three ways. Uh, one is that he had kneaded the mud, right? So uh, kneading, apparently, according to the Pharisees, was work. Right? You knead the mud. And he had anointed the man's eyes, and he had healed the man. So according to that very, very strict interpretation of the Sabbath, Jesus had broken the law of God. He cannot be from God. He is a sinner. But the question is, did Jesus really break the law of God? Was what, was he, was what he did really work? Uh, because he wasn't really a professional mud kneader, right? And he wasn't really a professional eye anointer. Didn't seem like a professional healer. See, so think for a moment. Let's say uh, you lived 2,000 years ago and you decide to go to the beach on, a, on, your, on, a, on your day off your Sabbath, right? And, and you know, it just happens on, the, on, your, on your day off at the beach. You decide to make a sandcastle. Okay, you know, you just make a small sandcastle, very inadequate one, not one of those super duper ones, right? Just a normal sandcastle. Well, that's considered work, you know? Because you've built something, you've, you've put sand together, you made it. But is that really work? Or is that just part of your rest? Well, to me, it sounds like rest, right? But according to the neat little box that Jesus had broken, according to the Pharisees, according to the interpretation, Jesus had broken the law and he cannot be from God. And the rest of the chapter 
shows how they try to put Jesus into that box and say he's a sinner. But there's only one problem. And the problem is, how do you explain the great miracle that happened? Because that is like the big white elephant in the room, isn't it? Because without explaining how this miracle happened, then you can't really paint Jesus just as a sinner and dismiss him. See, it says here that the, as the, the Pharisees already made their conclusion, they tried to look backwards and try to fit the facts, to fit the verdict that they already made, that he's a sinner. But the only problem is, now we have to get rid of this healing. Now, in the rest of the chapter, you notice, the first thing when they asked was, how were you healed? But subsequently, they start questioning did you, did you really get healed at all? Uh, were you the man who was born blind? So the first thing they do is uh, they call the parents, right? They call the parents. So in verse um, 18, it says, they, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received the sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know that he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. See, so they use intimidation, they use pressure, they threaten to excommunicate them out of the synagogue. But still the parents say, this is our son. He was born blind. He now sees. But we don't know how he can see. They now call the blind man again, right? They, they really have the verdict, he's a sinner, he's a sinner. So let's, let's find out whether we can, find, we can really show he's a sinner. So the second time in verse 24, a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. The one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, how did he do? Sorry, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now he's already asked, He's been asked this before, right? He answered, I've told you already, but you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now, if you look at this, you can obviously see that when they, they make this oath, tell the truth, right? Tell the truth. For God's sake, tell the truth. They're not really interested in the truth. They want the truth in order to make Jesus to be the sinner. And the blind man very honestly says, look, it's beyond my area of competence to know whether this man is a sinner or not. I'm not learned in your ways. I'm not a Pharisee. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now... I see. But you see, the Pharisees are still left with the problem. How to explain this great miracle away? How to explain away the display of God's work? 
And I think what the, the blind man says here is so profound that in the end they lose their temper and just throw him out, isn't it? Because in verse 30, the man says, and this is irrefutable, logical conclusion. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one has, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now these last few verses are really, really, uh, I guess, insightful of the way that the blind man sees the miracle and the Pharisees see the miracle. You see, biblically, the greater the, the miraculous act, uh, the more righteous and godly the prayer or the praying person must be. Right? Because in the Old Testament, uh, people like Elijah, people like Aisha, when they did great things, they were very righteous and godly, and therefore God answered their prayers. So what this blind man is saying is, look, this act of Jesus was one of the most greatest acts possible. Therefore, he must have been a very, very godly and righteous person. If not, he could do nothing. In fact, it was unheard of anywhere in the Old Testament, in the whole of the history of God's people, that anyone was healed born blind. None of the ancient prophets could do it. And on top of it, it was one of the signs of the Messianic age, right? So if you look up here, you can see in Isaiah, it keeps saying how in the last days when, when the Messiah comes, one of the signs would be the opening of the people, of the opening of their eyes from blindness. And this man's logic was, if this person, Jesus, was not from God, then how can he do these things? You see, even by the, the, the standards of modern medicine, it is very rare to heal someone of blindness, and, and even more so, someone who is born blind. I was thinking of my own experience. Uh, I, I know of this man who's a very renowned architect in Singapore. And uh, he designed one of the most iconic shopping centers in Singapore. I, I mean, uh, if, I don't want to mention it because you know who it is, but one of the most iconic shopping centers on Orchard Road he, he helped design. He's a very rich man. He's got houses in Singapore and Australia. But the problem is that he's going blind. He literally cannot see. Uh, he has lost his car license. He's not allowed to drive anymore. He has trouble seeing when it's dark. I remember helping him actually navigate a corridor in the dark because he found it too dark. He has all the money in the world, but yet modern medicine can't help him see. But yet Jesus, with just some mud and spit, helped this man who was born blind see. And the blind man's conclusion is this, isn't it? If, he is, if this is not a work of God, then, then, then what is it? Because man cannot do this. So what he's really saying is this on the next slide, right? He's saying... That the, the, God's, the display of God's power and the healing surely is more persuasive than the Pharisees' narrow understanding of the Sabbath rules. Without explaining the miracle, you cannot discount or reject Jesus 
just on the basis of your narrow interpretation of the law. But the irony is, instead of listening to the blind man who sees better than they, the Pharisees replied, you were steeped in sin at birth, how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now again, this is a, a, a real paradox, right? This is a real irony because all along they've been saying, are you sure you've been born blind? Are you sure you've been born blind? Are you the guy who was born blind? Are you sure? Not really, really are you? Is it you? But then at this point in time, they say, actually, you are the man born blind. You are the man born blind because you were steeped in sin at birth. And that's why you were born blind. Do you remember in the beginning, the disciples said, why is this man blind? Is it because he sinned? Well, the Pharisees are saying the same thing. You were in sin in birth, in the womb, and therefore you were born blind. See, they're saying that he is a sinful man who was born blind, but they still can't explain why he can now see. But instead of trying to explain why he can now see, they throw him out of the synagogue so that they don't have to be confronted with the unanswerable question that they have in front of them. See, I think that's one of the problems, isn't it, that the Pharisees face. You have very strong evidence of the existence of God in Jesus, the display of God's work. But instead of accepting the evidence, you reject Jesus because he doesn't fit into your little box. I remember uh, a long time ago, I was sharing Jesus and reading the Bible with uh, this student, uh, a foreign student. I think he was from Japan, I think. And he actually believed that Jesus did all these miracles. He believed that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. But as I talked to him, I realized that he really didn't believe in Jesus. And I said, well, how can it be? You, you believe that Jesus died, he rose again, he did all these miracles. How can you not believe in him? And he said, well... I can't accept a God who doesn't allow other ways of salvation. Can you, can you see what he's saying there? I, I can accept all these things that Jesus did, but I can't accept Jesus because he doesn't fit into my little box of expectations. I only accept a God who will allow other ways of salvation. See, I think that's a very dangerous thing. Where we only accept God on our terms. We are the judge of God. We set the terms for God. And we do not accept God as He really is. Now, the man is thrown out of the synagogue. And in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is, speaking, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Now again, it's really remarkable because this blind man, you remember when he was, uh, he was healed, he actually had go to go to the stream or the pool to wash his eyes. By that time, Jesus had gone. And now he sees Jesus, but he sees Jesus not just with physical eyes, 
but with spiritual eyes. Because he recognizes Jesus as Lord, he believes in him and he worships him. He has not just been given physical sight, but spiritual sight to see who Jesus is. Now, when it, oops, can you hear me? Is there something wrong on the mic? Eh? When it says here, um, verse 39, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. I think that automatically, because we live in darkness, there is judgment taking place. Because there's a separation right, into two groups, those who see and come into the light and those who choose to remain in darkness. There is a judgment and separation because Jesus comes to divide those who are blind and will see, but those who see but are actually blind. Now again, uh, when we, whenever Jesus opens his mouth, it really requires us to think very, very hard. What is he talking about here? That the blind will see and those who see are blind. Well, I think the, the last verse in verse 40, 41 helps us to understand what he really means, right? It's not that the Pharisees are physically blind, but they claim to be able to see. Right? So look very carefully in verse 41. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now if you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. See, the Pharisees claim to see because they think they can see, because they can see through the false confidence that they have in their knowledge and their wisdom and their traditions and their rules and their interpretation of the law. But because that they claim they can see, they're actually blind to Jesus as the light of the world. See, there's a problem, isn't it? The problem is you can think that you see Jesus and you create this impression of Jesus in your own mind based on your own wisdom or your own flawed thinking and you're actually blinded to who he really is. But the blind man, because he comes to Jesus with humility and no presuppositions, can see the miracle and say, Jesus is the one who is the Lord, the light of the world. I believe and worship him. I remember uh, there was a quote by Charles Spurgeon and he says, It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, but it is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, but our supposed light that hinders Him. Pride is always the enemy of true faith, religious pride, and unteachable heart. See, that's the problem with the Pharisees. They claim to be able to see. They think they can see. They think that they have the light to see, but they actually are blinded. They're unable to explain the miracle. They keep trying to disprove the miracle. In the end, the miracle is still staring them in the face, but they will not come to Jesus. What a terrible thing it is when you're actually blind, but you think you can see. I remember my grandfather died last year. He was 95 years old. And uh, my, 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 my family can tell you that in the last few years before he died, I was having this great tussle with my grandfather to get him uh, hear, a, a hearing aid. Okay? Uh, because whenever I went to visit my grandfather, uh, the conversation would be like this. I, I better not do it because you know, be like, I'll be shouting, Akong, how are you? And he'll be like, what? 
What are you saying? Are you eating well? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, your father came to visit me the other day. And it was like, so it's like, you know, I could never talk to him. He was like, he was like, so I have to talk in front of him. He has to see my lips and I have to shout really loudly. Then maybe 50% of what I'm saying is getting through. But he kept insisting. My hearing is fine. I can hear you. I can hear you very well. So anyway, I literally dragged him along with his mate to go see a hearing specialist. And uh, they found out that he was 80% deaf in one year and 50% deaf in the other. Right? But he still refused to, first of all, buy the, the hearing aid because it was too expensive. And secondly, when he bought the hearing aid, he refused to wear the hearing aid because he insisted that his hearing was pretty good that day. Now, it must have been so frustrating uh, for me, lah. To keep having this tussle day after day, uh, you know, every time I visited him, week after week, year after year. But imagine how hard it must be for, for Jesus and the disciples. A great miracle has taken place. A man who was born blind now sees. It is a display of the work of God that Jesus is the light of the world. That they need to come to him, that they need to move out of the darkness into the light of life. But the Pharisees and the neighbors still claim that they can see, but actually they are blind. I wonder whether that's the case for any of us here today. We think that we can see, we claim to be able to see, but actually we are blind. We claim that we are under the light, but actually we are in the darkness. Now for us who are believers, and I think for myself as I read this story, I thought, what a wonderful encouragement to faith this story is. that Jesus did this really remarkable work and that's all I need to know because through this work it displays to, to, to us that He is the light of the world. You know, I don't need to know why God allows suffering in this world. I don't need to know why maybe I'm disappointed in various things. I don't need to know why uh, God doesn't explain everything to me in this life. But because I know that Jesus healed this man born blind. That is a display that he is the light of life. That because of something concrete that he did in history, it is a display of God's work in him. So all the more, uh, whenever we're discouraged or we're downhearted or we question Jesus or God, we can turn and we can say, well, look, this man, like he says over and over again, I was blind but now I see. Well, it, it must mean that Jesus is the light of the world. It must mean that we must believe and worship Him as Lord. There is no other conclusion. There is no other reasonable thing to do. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that what Jesus did was uh, really remarkable display of your work. It was to point to Jesus as the light of life, the light of the world. Dear Father, help us to see that in your sovereignty, this man was born blind so that we could have a strong faith in Jesus as the light of the world. Help us those of us here today 
who have not seen that light. Help us to see that unbelief is not logical, that he was born blind and then he saw. Help us to see that claiming to see Jesus with our own knowledge and presuppositions and expectations is totally unreasonable in the light of this powerful miracle that Jesus did. We are just to just accept him as the light of the world, as the light of life. That whichever way we cut it, whichever way we try to explain it away, this man was born blind and now he sees. And help us to truly acknowledge that the only way to respond to Jesus in the light of what he did is to believe in him, to worship him as Lord. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.